So welcome to Bible study. We are doing Revelation chapter nine today, and this is a good one. Um, I, I feel like I say that every week, but that's okay. Chapter nine is really interesting and I think super applicable to what it is that we do today, like how we are living. This is one of those where it really does connect deeply to what we're doing in our lives right now. And so I'm really excited to be able to bring this to you. Before we start, a little bit of housekeeping. For those of you who are joining us um, for the first time, I want you to know that we've got an email list going and this email list helps remind us of our schedule. So do join that list and you can do so by visiting our website, stmichael.org slash RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. stmichael.org slash RBS. You can sign up for the newsletter there by emailing Meredith. You can also get a bookmark of our schedule. So the spring schedule is set. We miss one Wednesday for spring break, but otherwise we're here every Wednesday all the way through the very early May so that we can go finish the entire book of Revelation. You can go to the stmichael.org slash RBS page as well, and you can listen to previous lessons and Good news, we are actually going to begin to formally podcast the audio recordings of all of these teachings, which effectively means in the past, you've been able to listen to the audio via SoundCloud. SoundCloud, although great and useful, is not quite as universally accessible as a true podcast. And so now we're going to truly podcast. And that way, if you miss a lesson or if you really prefer to, I know some people have told me that what they do is they put in their headphones or their earbuds and then they go walking and they actually listen as they are kind of active, which is great. And that would be easy to do, especially once this is a proper podcast. So we are ready to go. Um, we're going to open with a prayer and then we'll jump in. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We ask that you help to open us up, help us to put down everything that we have carried with us into this new day, that we can make space inside our hearts and minds for your spirit to fill us up that we can be filled up and guided by your hand to be inspired to do the work you've given us to do, to be your hands and feet in the world that you love. Today, we especially remember those who are sick, those who need your healing touch the most, that they know your presence, that they be surrounded by the love and care and skill of those who take care of them and that they may find healing. And even if healing does not come, we love you and we trust you. And we believe that we are never separated from you, even in death. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. So we are actually jumping into chapter nine today. And last week, I apologize again, I just did not schedule properly. And so I didn't realize Eastern time, central time, all that sort of stuff. I wanted to be a political nerd and go watch the inauguration. And so we had an abbreviated class. So we're going to kind of touch on the end of chapter eight and transition well into chapter nine. So chapter eight, the plagues have begun, right? The seven angels got their seven trumpets and they began to sound their trumpets one after another. And as they began to sound their trumpets, we get this 
beginning of the plagues. And we mentioned that these plagues are meant to connect with the idea of plagues, like we know in other parts of the Bible, especially in Exodus. The plagues worked in Exodus to free people. And so very similarly, the plagues here in Revelation are working to free people, free the people who are stuck, free the people who have chosen not to repent, free the people who are really anchored in the a way of life that is disconnected from God. And so these plagues, in a sense are freeing the individuals who live on the earth, the humans who are there on the earth, in a way that is uh, precedent or similar, in a sense, to what happened in Exodus. It's not a one-to-one. -one. We don't get ten plagues. We get effectively seven-ish, not fully seven. Um, but we will see, especially in chapter 9, the way that some of the plagues from Revelation echo and even combine a few of the plagues from Exodus. And I think that's pretty fascinating, the way that John used that um, to kind of echo what a lot of these good Jews and new Christians may have known from the Hebrew Scriptures. Chapter 8 ends with the sounding of the fourth trumpet as those plagues begin fire being cast on the earth. We had that big um, incense, that censer, and those coals were cast on on the earth, and we had earthquakes and thunder and all that good stuff. Now we get into chapter 9, and we get the fifth angel blowing the trumpet. And so we're going to jump in to verse 1. I do want to note that we had some excellent questions, excellent comments and thoughts and emails, messages over this last week both from chapters 8 and also anticipating chapters 9. And so I will get to some of those along the way in our study. So let's look first at the beginning of chapter 9. We'll start together in verse 1. Ready? Here we go. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Now, as we begin this chapter, the fifth of those seven trumpets sound, and like the third trumpet, this fifth trumpet signals a falling star. That falling star really gives us a signal of something horrible, and that horrible promise, this plague, this pain that is going to fall on the earth really begins with this shooting star, this falling star. Um, I am sending a quick note to make sure we're sharing all of this as well as we can. So this fifth trumpet and this falling star signals that something horrible is going to come and what I think is fascinating about this section is that it seems as if this horrible stuff is locked up. This horrible plague that is about to be unleashed is being freed from lockup in this very interesting way. And I want to kind of pause here and discuss this idea that the plague is somehow hidden and locked and needs to be freed in order for it to kind of do its business. This idea of being locked up and being hidden and containing the bad stuff 
is really something that gels with the teachings of Jesus. Now, let's remember that Jesus's teachings are, is the main influence of the people to which John is writing this letter, right? So John is writing this letter to churches in Asia, to people who have chosen to follow Jesus, and John's trying to help them be good disciples of Jesus as they move forward. Now, the parables and teachings of Jesus would have been ones that were discussed, ones that were taught, ones that were puzzled over and wrestled with in these churches. Part of what we see in Jesus' parables and teachings is often pointing at a dualism at play in the world and at play in the human heart. This kind of dualism is one that we see in stories and in teachings that Jesus offers. Consider the story about the disciples who don't wash their hands like the Pharisees do that we see in Mark. The Pharisees see that Jesus' disciples aren't properly washing their hands. They're not doing the stuff that good Jews are supposed to do outwardly. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by saying, listen, just because they don't do that thing outwardly doesn't mean that what's on the inside is problematic. And then he flips it on them and he says, in fact, those of you who do the right signs and do the right stuff in the outside may not actually be right so to speak, on the inside. Jesus regularly points to these moments when he wants people to truly repent and turn and heal from the inside out, that doing all the right stuff is only so good. Now, it's definitely not a problem to do the right stuff on the outside. Okay, not a problem, right? Whether that's, uh, here's a good example. Jesus uses washing the hands and all that sort of stuff with the Pharisees, and that is, that is no problem, right? We, we kind of understand that conceptually, although I would guess very few of us, if any of us, have ever been a part of a tradition in which we have to kind of physically wash up as part of the ritual of worship. But I will say we do know there is a version of this kind of wash up that we do in our own churches, and that is we dress well, right? How many times as children or as parents were we told or did we tell to wash up, to look good, to wear good clothes, to kind of present well at church? There is nothing wrong with dressing well and looking good and being clean and preparing for church. Okay, nothing wrong with that. There is something very wrong, however, when we begin to conflate the idea of preparing for and dressing up for church with somehow needing to do that, as if God is not happy with us, or God is not pleased with us, or we are not welcome in church if we aren't cleaned up and dressed properly and looking good. That is absolutely wrong. I like to say to my own children, if you've got the time and the ability and the capacity to make yourself up to treat church like it is really something special, which means you might look a little nicer than normal, wear some clothes a little nicer than normal. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's good for us on the outside to do something special to prepare for a moment that is special, like church. However, I want to be very clear with my own kids and with all of you, if you can't, 
or if you don't, God does not care. Jesus does not care if you're wearing a tie or you have shined your shoes or if your handbag matches your whatever. That is not how this works. If you've got the time and you can put in the time to mark the occasion as something special, do it. It's great. But don't ever do it. Don't ever look good or dress up or do so thinking that it's necessary. I never want anyone to think they can't come into church like a sloppy hot mess. They are totally welcome, right? You got one shoe on, come to church. You've got a dirty face, come to church. Your breath smells, come to church, right? Whatever. Church is where you can go all the time, no matter who you are, how you look, what state you're in, because in a sense, the church is that spiritual hospital, right? We are supposed to be healing people here. We're not supposed to be celebrating our perfection. That's not Christian at all. And in that sense, John in this opening phrase kind of hints at this dualism to make sure that what we do on the outside isn't totally disconnected from what's going on on the inside. Because in fact, what's going on on the inside is always most important. It is always the most important thing as a follower of Jesus to get right on the inside and let the outside go totally to mess, right? That's okay. In the first century, these followers of Jesus needed this kind of good word because they're living in a culture that expects perfection, that expects people to look good, to be successful, to achieve and to gain and to all of that stuff. Not unlike the 21st century, where we all live in this place where we're supposed to present that everything is going well, that everything is fine, that we are successful, that we've got everything we want, that we've got it all together. And unfortunately, one of the places where people often do that the most is at church. That's not where we're supposed to have everything together. Now, if you know, if you, your outfit looks good, then great. But if you ever feel like church or faith is where you cannot be vulnerable and you cannot be messy and you cannot be imperfect, then you have gotten it wrong. We are backwards, right? That is where we can let all of our mess out. Faith, our relationship with God, the community of God that we share together, that's exactly where we can be sloppy and messy and imperfect and vulnerable so that we can heal. That idea undergirds chapter nine in a very significant way. We live in a created world that in a sense binds up the darkness, right? We as humans, in a sense, bind up that darkness. We hide away the dark stuff inside of us. And sometimes that's really for good measure, right? We don't, if we might be a little too mean, then maybe we try actually not to be so mean. We try to kind of hide that meanness. We try to resolve those imperfections and striving for that is no problem. But when we hide it, when we repress it, when we lock it away, what can happen is that it all bursts and explodes. And that is the real problem. What Jesus 
teaches and what John is expressing in his vision is this sort of uh, allegorical, metaphorical experience that articulates our own human condition. And here, as this fifth trumpet sounds and the star falls, what we're going to see in this bottomless pit is that the darkness is unleashed. The darkness pops and begins to spread over everything that may or may not have had a little goodness in it. Just like our own souls can hide and lock up that darkness, and by doing so, we repress it and we confine it, and it can explode in ways that are not good. Let's continue looking at verses 3 through 6. Ready? Then the smoke... Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Oh my goodness. We'll stop there. Whew. Okay, so this plague, we'll start with the technical stuff, right? This plague is reminiscent of something that we saw in Egypt. So remember, during the 10 plagues in Egypt, this is in the book of Exodus, Moses at one point gathers up the dust and the soot and the ash from a fire and like throws it into the air. And when he throws that ash up into the air, it goes and it covers Egypt and it causes boils. This is the boils plague. And it comes by throwing ash and dust and soot. Now imagine if you were to take fine ash and just toss it into the air, it is very reminiscent of smoke, right? It kind of floats and hovers a bit in the air. It turns things misty and dark and unclear. And like that, we see that these locusts come out of the smoke in the way that the boils came out of the ash. Now, obviously, the boils came from the ash, but we know that one of the other plagues in Egypt was the plague of locusts. And so in a sense, John has kind of combined these two plagues. The idea of the soot and ash that gives boils is kind of woven into what is released here from the bottomless pit in Revelation, which are locusts, one of the other Egyptian plagues. And so together we get this com combined plague. It's like locusts 2.0 because these locusts are stronger and more destructive than the locusts that we saw back in Egypt. These bugs, as it were, are not to act like normal locusts, right? So a normal locust swarm would go and kill all the vegetation, kill all of the plants, and that's actually the pain of the plague. Instead, these locusts are meant to torture people. They are to torture the people who do not have the seal of God. Now, remember a few chapters ago, we got this moment where God's faithful people were sealed. And we talked about how seals in Scripture are often used as a sign of protection, right? Think back at the very beginning um, in Genesis when Cain was sealed in order to be protected after he had killed Abel but was sent out of the garden, right? 
seals are meant to protect people. And so now on the earth, there is a group of people, God's faithful people, who are sealed. They will not experience the torture and the pain of these locusts. As if the torture and the pain wasn't bad enough, this torture will last for five months and the people have no escape, no respite. They can't even die. I mean, how horrible is this, right? These locusts go and they start bugging everybody and stinging everybody and it's painful and it's horrible. And the implication here seems to be like people would rather die than suffer these locusts. They will look for death and they will not find it. They may even try to die and they will not be able to because the idea here is this horrible torture, horrible. These locusts are described in more detail than any other creature in all of the book of Revelation. So they are a certain kind of important. So let's look at verses 7 through 11 and see how these locusts are described. Here we go. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is their power to harm people for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. So we'll pause there. <laughs> These locusts are horrible. They are described with armor and with all of these weird things and the teeth and all of that stuff, and it's just terrible. And in their stinger comes the capacity to hurt people for five months, to torture them for five months. Now, these locusts are, in a sense, kind of brilliant fighting machines, right? They're sort of these perfect, damaging, destructive vehicles. Throughout time, right? So this has been 2,000 years since this book was written. Throughout time, these locusts have been used to help identify when revelation is coming true. And we'll note that, I've said this many times, revelation is not to be predictive. Revelation is meant to reveal a deeper truth. So this kind of idea of predictive, like we can look for signs and then we know revelation is happening now and so the end of times is near, people have done that for a couple thousand years. Revelation, read that way, is too shallow. Revelation is so much better than that. There's so much better in Revelation than just using it as if it were predictive. Instead, Revelation can be a dramatic story that actually gets in touch with our own condition. If we go deeper in passages like this, we have the opportunity to be self-reflective. We have the opportunity to read Revelation in a way that invites us to wonder what is exactly buried and hidden deep inside our own hearts, deep inside our own souls that, if unlocked and unleashed, could be really destructive. 
If we go deeper in a moment like this, and we don't get wrapped up in the description of the locusts, in the idea that perhaps at some point we might see things that are kind of reminiscent of these locusts, and then we know Revelation's happening, and we're looking for the end of times, and then maybe, no, no. If we put all that down, and we say that stays at a relatively shallow level, and instead, this idea of unleashing and unlocking the darkness is actually something we can apply to ourselves. What is that darkness in us? What is that darkness in our culture, in our society, in our world that we lock away? We ignore it. We act like it's not there. We like to talk like it's not there. We seem to function as if we want to ignore its truth, its reality, and instead ignoring it means that it only gains power. Remember in the past, we have discussed God's saving experiment. God is here on this rescue mission of salvation for all of us. And part of that salvation is a genuine, true, deep healing. If we think about the way that our bodies heal, it gets worse before it gets better. If we think about the way our bodies heal, we have to actually purge and get rid of the stuff that makes us sick, of the stuff that is damaging us, in order to properly heal. In a sense, what has happened here is that that angel has gone down into that bottomless pit, unleashed the infection at the center of creation. And in doing so, even though it will get bad, begun to purge what makes the creation sick. Just like that, we, as created, loving children of God, have those pits of darkness in us. We've got all that stuff that we politely repress and try to ignore and try to live beyond. And instead of actually dealing with what makes us sick, instead of purging it, letting it come out into the light, exposing it for what it is in order to heal, we lock it up in the bottomless pits. Perhaps we have a chance in this kind of passage to reflect on what it is that we ignore, that we lock up, that we repress, and acknowledge that simply acting like it's not there, acting like that darkness is gone, doesn't mean it is. Rather, can we purge this, bring the darkness out into the light, even if it hurts, can we do so in order to actually repent and heal and move toward God? I think the answer is yes. Verse 12 says, the first woe has passed. There are still two woes to come. Ominous, right? All right. So we are going to take a break. That's the end of the first section. Oh, you know what I did in the confusion of the whole like technology not working and all that stuff? I forgot to tell you. Today's lesson is divided into two sections. The first section is the locust attack. That's what we just did. And the second section is the fiery cavalry. We're going to pause here. 
before we get into the second part of chapter nine, so that I can remind you all that I love questions, I love comments, I hope you will make them. In addition to the questions and comments, I want you to say hi to each other. If you're on one of the social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, and the others, then say hello. Make a comment, tell us you're here, check in with one another. Man, you know what? I hope that we are moving toward a time when we can at least begin to come back together in person. Maybe not exactly the way that we were, but in some form or fashion, wouldn't that be nice? Um, I'm also gonna look at these questions and see if we might address a few in this little interim period. All right, so last week we got a few questions that I think are pretty good. Um, we just discussed the darkness in our world, in the creation, both corporately and individually. We got one really great question last week around forgiveness. Um, the question comes from a general sense of frustration, anger at the state of the world, and this significant sense or feeling of anger toward others, people who do hurtful things. Um, and I, I think there's this sense of, you know, big corporate stuff, but also personal stuff. And the question really reduces down to this. How do we approach loving and forgiving people who have done harmful and violent things when some of us are really angry in particular with those who do those things and have no regret or remorse? What a good question. This is similar to a question we had a couple weeks ago where people said, you know, Jesus says, when asked, how many times do we forgive? Effectively, Jesus' response is every time. We forgive over and over again. Should we forgive seven times? Nope, seven times, 70 times. Jesus lives a life in which forgiveness is the priority. Now, forgiveness in a churchy sense can sound a little theological. I have sinned, please forgive me, you are forgiven, that kind of stuff. That is, that's an expression of forgiveness, which I think is important. But if all we're doing when it comes to forgiveness is trying to erase the wrong, then we're not quite getting as deep into the concept of forgiveness and repentance as we could. And that is from the perspective of the person who did the wrong. Flip it and say, what if you're the person who is wronged? We have examples through time of people who have been wronged experiencing and offering forgiveness whether or not the person who wronged them is remorseful or regretful or repentant. Why then should we be called to a repentance uh, forgiveness of those who are not sorry for their wrongs? My answer, beyond just Jesus did, we should, that, that's fine, that's a good answer. But I think in a more human sense, forgiveness is not really ever because the other person deserves or wants forgiveness. Forgiveness is first and foremost because the person who was wronged or hurt deserves the peace that forgiveness brings. I'll say that in a different way. Oftentimes, 
we treat or talk about forgiveness as something we offer a person who has wronged us because they deserve it. We want people to apologize. We want people to make something right. And if they apologize and they make it right and they do other stuff, then we forgive. Forgiveness is not contingent upon the person who did the wrong being repentant. But rather, forgiveness is something we who have been wronged offer because we deserve the peace that forgiveness gives us. Now, ideally, the person who did the wrong is also repentant and remorseful and tries to repair that relationship. But how many times have you heard or been in a situation when someone who has been wronged can never seem to get remorse or regret or an apology from the person who did the wronging? And then they kind of feel stuck in this place where they can't forgive until the person wants to be forgiven. Not true. Forgiveness is something that we can offer whether the person who did the wrong wants forgiveness or not. In that similar sense, I do believe that God in his own way forgives us whether we are truly sorry or not. I mean, how many times did I as a child have to go to confession and kind of not make stuff up, but I mean, search for, I can remember like as a, you know, an eight-year-old going to confession and having to confess what? I don't know. I'm eight, right? I mean, what really did I do, right? I was, I backtalked. Maybe I annoyed my sister. I, you know, whatever. It is not that big a deal. Um, as we get older, of course, most of us have much more to confess, but the idea of confessing to God is good for our souls. As the idea of forgiving those who hurt us is good for our souls. Play with this idea that forgiveness is not contingent upon repentance. That if you have been wronged, you can forgive whether the other is repentant or not. Because in that act of forgiveness, you are loving your neighbor just as you have been loved. In that act of forgiveness, you are moving toward peace because you deserve that peace. All right, there's one question down. Um, mm -mm 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 -mm. I think let's press on so we have enough time to get to the end of chapter nine. So now we're going to go into the second part of chapter nine, which is the fiery cavalry. Having worked at a church named Calvary, I am very conscious to say cavalry. Um, I probably messed that up at least once, so forgive me. Let's start at verse 13, and we are going to see this fiery cavalry in all its glory. Chapter 9, verse 13, here we go. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released, who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of humankind. The number of the troops of cavalry was 200 million. I heard their number. 
And this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they inflict harm. Oh my my. We'll pause there. Following this five-month torture from these locusts comes a fiery cavalry across the Euphrates River. Now the locusts that torture the people of God after the fifth trumpet, plays at a particular kind of fear, right? If we put ourselves in the place of the people who were attacked by the locusts, there is a certain kind of localized fear, right? The locusts tap into our loss of control in a personal sense, right? We are still in our homes being attacked by locusts. We might still be going to work being attacked by locusts. We might still be eating at our dinner table being attacked by locusts, but we still have some sense of who we are and where we are, that ground of being is still there, even though the pain of the locusts is controlling us in that personal sense. No matter how painful or damaging those locusts were, people still had that anchor of their own identity. But with this sixth trumpet, a deeper, more fundamental fear is unleashed. See, those without God's seal may not only lose their lives, but their entire social structure. This cavalry comes pouring over the Euphrates River, 200 million, to almost like the locusts, just pour, wash over everybody, killing a third of the people, completely upending the entire cultural, social order of the world. Their very corporate identity is at stake here, being threatened to be lost forever. Now, think about the way fear plays into our own lives today. I want you to kind of participate with me in a little bit. Think about the way that fear is experienced by us in our day-to-day -day lives. If I were to ask you, what keeps you up at night? Right? Think about it. What fear keeps you up at night, wakes you up in the morning, plays in your mind during the day? My guess is that for most of us, and perhaps even all of us watching today, the fear we feel day to day are the kinds of fears that are personal and small. Now, by no means do I mean small in a condescending way. I mean small in the sense of impact. For most of us, the fears that worry us day to day are fears that have to do with our own security or the security of our immediate loved ones, right? Our spouse, our children, our parents, our good friends. And we may experience that kind of fear as a loss of security, as a loss or risk of health or mortality. That kind of security, health, mortality of us or our loved ones is small in the sense that it's not a lot of people, right? It's a tight circle. That's the kind of fear that tends to play with us most of the time. But if I ask you a slightly different question, when you consider the use of fear 
as a corporate motivator. Think about the way that the news tries to scare us in a corporate sense. What fears are they playing on? The answer is that global fear, right? Not that local fear of me, my loved ones, my family, my good friends, right? We're talking about the fear of a global nature. And this has been true throughout all of human history. To motivate a huge number of people, oftentimes leaders use fear because it gets at us in our fundamental human condition. Let's just look back at the 20th century, right? We were unified multiple times here in this country around global fears, right? In the early part of the 20th century, we were unified around this fear of fascism, right? Coming out of World War I into World War II, this idea that Germany and the fascist way that it represented would somehow overcome and destroy our entire culture, our way of being. Then in the middle of, in the late 20th century, we were unified in our fear of communism, right? This cold war idea that we have no idea what's going on behind the iron curtain. It could be anything. It could be 200 million cavalry ready to pour out over us at any moment. And so we lived in this sense of anxiety and fear in that global sense that what was over there and unseen could undo our entire social order. Then, of course, in the early part of the 20th, first century, we had this sense of unity, eh, kind of unity, a fear of what was at the time termed the axis of evil, right? This general euphemism for terrorism that is over there, often in the Middle East, often Arabs, that was not hard to kind of then bleed out into a misunderstanding and a misidentification of all Muslims as being scary, right? We too often experience a unified fear that is global. And because that is just human, it's who we are, leaders who do not wish the best can actually use that fear to create in our social order a sense that we have to be afraid of what we do not know, have to be afraid of what we cannot see. This is problematic for us. And just like in the 21st century, this was happening in the first century. Let's put ourselves in the first century where Revelation was being written. The great fear in the Roman Empire was from the unknown areas, right? North of the Roman Empire in Northern Europe, those Germanics people who will ultimately actually come down and sack Rome in the fifth century, or from the Northeast and East, which is effectively kind of like Central Asia. Think about specifically the Israelite people. If we go back, remember back in Daniel, earlier this school year, the real threat after the people leave Egypt is from the Northeast and the East. Across the Euphrates was Persia. And in the Israelite identity, from the Euphrates came this scary group of people that overtook them, overwhelmed them, took them into exile. And even after being returned from exile, there is this sense that from the north, northeast, east area, Central Asia, could come a band of people, this horrible people that could not just annoy you, hurt you, kill you, 
But worse than even dying is the total loss of identity of your entire culture, your political system, your people's identity. Here in Revelation, when John has this vision of the angels locked at the river Euphrates being freed and then charging to the west with 200 million fiery cavalry, what John is playing at in this vision is that deep, deep global fear that what we don't know could ultimately hurt us beyond any of our imagining. John sees these angels freed and knows that by describing them coming from the Euphrates, a chill would run down the spines of any of these churches in Asia who understand the vulnerability that comes from the unknown. Let's keep reading. We'll jump back in at verse 20. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. In this chapter, we have seen from the bottomless pit rise up smoke and locusts for five months to torture humankind. Then, after the locusts, comes the fiery cavalry that killed a third of humankind. And then in the final verses of this chapter, what do we see? The rest of humankind, the two-thirds unsealed who did not die, do not repent. Those who were not killed by the plagues did not repent. What? Looking from the outside in, we should read these verses and say, what are you talking about they didn't repent? Look at everything that happened. Five months of locusts, fiery cavalry coming from the Euphrates, killing a third of the people. What more does it take for us in these chapters to understand that repentance is necessary? To actually understand that repentance is what God is calling us into. Save yourself, right? Repent. Those who did not die did not repent. After everything that happened, after these horrible experiences, they still resist God's call. I hope that when we read this, it's a little bit of a stunner. I hope that we read those verses and we think, are you kidding me? Why in the world would they have not repented after everything that they saw? But when we look behind these final verses, when we don't take them at face value, when we don't think of this as predictive, but rather an invitation for us to understand what's really happening and to go deeper, when we go deeper and we look underneath these verses, we get reminded of that fundamental idea that John holds about our human condition. For John, like the Jewish people and those early Christ followers in the first century, there's an understanding that the basic humanity, our basic humanity rests on the idea that our human evil emerges from 
a lack of connection to God, that we, when we act in bad, hurtful, evil ways, those actions are born out of a disconnection from God. Now, here in this verse, John says they continue their idolatry. And John lists the idolatry in a material way. But make no mistake, the real heart and theology of this passage has nothing to do with physical statues. John is not really indicating that these people just simply prayed to little statues. No, no, no. John is really getting at, they prayed, they centered their lives, they anchored their lives, they rooted their entire identity on stuff that was not God. Does that make sense? God has called us to repent and turn. And that repentance in that turn is meant to focus us on God, to root us on God, to send us toward God. When we do not, we find that we are connected to and in love with and infatuated by the stuff that is not of God. Now, this thread runs all the way through Revelation. The fundamental idea here is that God should be the center, the core of our life, the ground of our being, our real spiritual starting point. When John writes of repentance and says that the people who are still there, the unsealed who did not die, do not repent, John is speaking of and interested in our repentance. John is not talking about repenting of small, dumb mistakes, right? We can often get a little sidetracked by thinking, ah, oh, we said the wrong thing to that person, or oh, maybe we hurt their feelings, or oh, we didn't do that one thing we should have done. And then we worry that that's the real stuff we need to repent. No, 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 that's fine. Go apologize, make amends, repair relationships. Absolutely, that's important. But that is not the deepest way of being that repentance calls us into. Repentance calls us into a complete, total change of our lives, a complete and total change of who we are and how we root our entire identity. The repentance that John wants is a fundamental turning toward God. That everything we are and everything we do be focused, centered on God. That true repentance is a true change of our fundamental being. It's what those who remain alive after the plagues refuse to do. And unfortunately, it's what so many of us today refuse to do. We allow the world to pull at us. We allow the world to misguide us. We allow the world to define us. When, in truth, we are beautifully created by God. We are loved by God in all of our mess. And nothing we do and nothing that we have ever done can separate us from that divine identity. Yet, how many of us don't truly believe that? How many of us find that the world still defines us in a certain way and it's the weight that we wear 
It's what pulls us down and drags us down and keeps us from being that beautiful creation that God made. How many of us do not acknowledge the darkness that has been locked away? The darkness that we need to purge in order to be healed. This is a critical fundamental understanding of Revelation's message. This is why I want us all to be willing to put aside this idea that Revelation's predicting anything and instead go much deeper. Don't stay at that shallow level looking for signs of like, when is the apocalypse coming? Don't do that stuff. Instead, go deep, go deep beyond just this surface shallow understanding and challenge yourself, challenge your soul, challenge who you really are so that everything we do turns toward and is focused on God. That every action we take, every relationship that we help to nurture is grounded in this way of being and understanding that we are beautiful, that we can be made whole, that we can heal with God. This is the promise of Revelation. This is the promise and the hope that John was communicating to his churches in Asia. And this is why Revelation is still so important to us today in the 21st century. We have a lot of work to do, and we cannot do that work alone. That's the power of our community. When we yoke together, when we live a life that is definitely believing in the power of community, then we really do begin to live as God hopes us to live. We get that strength and that healing and that vision and that hope that guides us and changes us for the better. All right, my friends, that's all I got for you today. Revelation chapter nine, it's good stuff. I'm glad that you were here and I'm sorry about some of the tech problems. Um, if you are watching this on demand because you missed it live, Make your comments, ask your questions. Even if you're right here with us live right now, make your comments, ask your questions. I would love to receive those as we prepare for chapter 10 next week. And until then, may God bless you and keep you. I will see you soon. Be good to yourself. Be good to someone else too. Bye, everybody.